CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, uh, we've reached another Friday on this show, and it feels to me like every Friday I start the show by saying virtually the same thing. It's been another consequential week in Georgia and, for that matter, in the United States. Um, And once more, we have so much to talk about, and uh, I'm very happy that to do that. I'm joined today by uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, who represents uh, Decatur. She's also an attorney in Decatur. Uh, Mary Margaret, thank you so much for being here. You're getting set to go into session to finish, what, the last 11 days, I think, of this session starting on Monday? Good morning. We start Monday morning at 10 a.m. I'm not sure where I'm supposed to sit when I come into the Capitol, but I'll be there at 10 <laughs> And I'm <laughs> of course you will. <laughs> and masks are required, so I will be there with a mask on. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, legislation that you're going to be looking at starting next week. Edward Lindsay joins us. He, of course, a former state representative, uh, representative of the city of Atlanta, and now uh, heads the uh, Georgia um, practice. Uh, Edward, what do we call it? The Georgia... Policy. What practice at Denton's, the world's largest law firm? Thanks for having me. Yeah, what do we call your um, the division you represent, you oversee, the Georgia Government uh, Affairs po- Division, Government right? Affairs. Public policy. Public policy. Yeah. Okay, okay. I'm still waking up. I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> Jim Galloway, by the way, is taking uh, the day off, and we already miss him, but we're going to muddle through the show. Without Galloway today. Um, all right, let's get started. Uh, obviously, the big, big story in Georgia this week, it made headlines here and across the country, was the story about the confusion, the problems that uh, came up in our primary election on Tuesday. Um, you know, we've talked about it to some, with some, in some extensive ways this week already. But Mary Margaret and Edward, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on exactly what happened here. And, and let me preface this by saying one thing. We, were, we took great pains to make clear, both on Wednesday's and Thursday's show, that with all the horror stories about people who waited for four or five hours, polling places that didn't close until after midnight to make sure everybody got a chance to vote, that while that certainly happened, there were many polling places in many counties across the state that had no problems at all. That's true. But, Mary Margaret, that said, when one person has to wait six hours to cast a ballot, five hours to cast a ballot, even if many of us got in and out fairly quickly, that taints the election for all of us, it seems to me. So it doesn't seem to me you can simply say, oh, well, there are problems in a few places, but not in a lot of others. This means it's a problem for everyone who votes. It is a, definitely a problem for everyone who votes. And the anxiety around voting this year exceeds anything I've ever experienced in my long political career. Uh, for us to say only isolated problems, or, or not us, but for the Secretary of State to say only 
isolated problems or only problems in DeKalb and Fulton is really a significant uh, gap in his understanding of how upset people are. I'm very happy to report that I walked into my precinct in person Tuesday uh, and there was no wait and uh, with some help from a uh, staff, from a poll worker, I was able to vote easily and uh, it was a very smooth experience. One precinct over south of me, one precinct over west of me in Grady and around Oakhurst. Uh, the number of hours that people waited is simply unacceptable. There is no one who will say what happened on Tuesday was an acceptable rollout. And I've got a lot of thoughts about that and I've got a lot of work on my desk in preparing for what the speaker, David Ralston, has called for in the Government Affairs Committee, where I'm the senior Democrat in that committee, to do an investigation of what happened on Tuesday, June 9th. Yeah, well, we're going to look forward to what your committee finds out. Edward? Well, first of all, uh, let me clarify one thing about Secretary of State Raffensperger. I don't think when he said that uh, the problems were concentrated in a few counties, he was dismissing the seriousness uh, of the issue, but he was trying to sort of pinpoint uh, where uh, changes needed to be made and fixes needed to be made. I don't believe he was in any way trying to intimate that it was okay for someone to have to wait six hours, or even more significantly, it was okay for some folks who had ordered their absentee ballots uh, weeks in advance and never got them. Uh, I would divide the, the, the issue between two things. Uh, one is aggravating and the other is unacceptable. Aggravating uh, is what uh, someone who had to wait six hours uh, to, uh, to be able to vote, but still was able to vote. Aggravating is what I had to do when I had to wait two hours uh, because my voting place in Fulton County didn't uh, have the machines working for somewhere between 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, and but like I said, but unacceptable is when someone was denied their ability to vote. And you know what the Secretary of State was trying to do uh, was sort of say, look, we need to sort of focus on where the problems existed in the state and see what we need to do to fix it. And there are a lot of things to fix it. I'm very happy that, that, the, that the Speaker of the House is, is taking this on and recognizes that this is a problem. Uh, there is plenty of blame to go around uh, between uh, different folks who are in charge of uh, the, the election process, both at the state and the county level. The question is, what are they going to collectively do uh, from this point forward to get us through a smooth runoff uh, in mid-August, and, and then a general election, which is, <laughs> given the turnout uh, last Tuesday, uh, we can almost guarantee will be a record turnout in Georgia. Uh, there is enormous issues involved here, uh, given, you know, with the, and then you have the overlay of the pandemic that we're having to deal with. You're going to have a record number of people uh, seeking to vote by mail, uh, and you know, we need to put together the necessary infrastructure to allow for that. Uh, we're going to need to, quite frankly, to train our poll workers, a lot of whom are going to be new because a lot of the older poll workers are worried about coming back uh, to do what they used to do because of their fear of, of the pandemic. And, and we're going to have to make sure that these brand new machines operate correctly because Mary Margaret is right. We cannot have uh, either in August or November, what we saw uh, 
three days ago. Uh, Mary Margaret, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I've been giving a lot of thought, and then you actually were par- uh, uh, watched uh, Kathy Cox, Secretary of State, back at the turn of the 2000s, talk about this the other day. Melita Easters of the Georgia Win List uh, had a conversation with her, a web conversation with her. Uh, we all remember that in 2002, when we switched, became the first state in the country to go to computer uh, uh, ballot uh, balloting, uh, we didn't have we didn't have a pandemic for sure. But the training was far more extensive from the state level to county level. There were the glitches were more minimal. There was an enormous amount of communication that went to voters via TV news stories, commercials, that sort of thing. That transition happened relatively seamlessly. Yes, there were added problems this time with the virus. Nevertheless, when the Secretary of State's people tried to say, well, this is a county problem, we did everything right, the fact of the matter is everybody's got to figure out a way to work together and stop the finger pointing. Voting in Georgia is a shared partnership between the Secretary of State and locals, and uh, that partnership has failed. The most helpful information I got this week from Kathy Cox, who went through the implementation of computer machines for the first time, I was running in 2002 to come back into politics after I'd been out for a while. So I was watching that closely along the campaign trial, the controversy around her, the focus on her. There was a group of citizens who were just totally apoplectic about not having paper ballots. And in a fact, that issue has reemerged in 2020. But the most interesting thing to me is that her contract with the vendor that she purchased the machines from required the vendor to do the training. And the contract, as she said in her interview this week, required specific training by the vendor in every precinct of at least two poll workers. In addition to that, the contract provided that the vendor had specific tech obligations. There had to be a tech support, vendor-supported person in every county of the 159 counties we have. That is a big element of a contract. Further, she said she had on election day, this was her staff, 107 staff people out in the state so that there would be a ratio of Secretary of State staff on the ground throughout Georgia that would be immediately available. Uh, I ask... uh, All right, I got to jump. Mary Margaret, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. I have got to jump in, as you know. And uh, so we're going to take a break right now, and I apologize for interrupting, but let's do that, and we'll come back and continue our conversation. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, who, by the way, teach Sunday school together uh, at their church and so are good friends, despite the fact that one is a Republican and the other a Democrat. Uh, And that's one of the reasons we like so much having them on this show, because they have different views, but they really talk about them with a a lot of kindness and respect for one another's point of view. All right. I'd like to move on past the election for right now, because we're going to be talking about a lot in the week ahead. And by the way, Rob Pitts, one of the longest serving elected official, African-American elected officials in the state of Georgia, will be our guest on Monday show. He's now chair of the Fulton County Commission. He wants to uh, dig into what happened in Fulton County. And we'll also talk to him about uh, the uh, the. discussion of race that is going on in this country right now and how important it's become. Um, All right, let's move on. Edward Lindsay, 
last night, the governor, I, I think, surprised a lot of people uh, by uh, continuing to lift restrictions uh, uh, for the shelter-in-place rules that he had uh, ordered a month ago. Um, among them, uh, people, up to 50 people can gather without uh, uh, social distancing requirements uh, being necessary. Um, uh, concerts can start again on July 1st. Live entertainment venues, uh, they're going to have to follow specific rules. Um, for groups larger than 50 people, the governor says you still have to have social distancing of 66 six feet apart. He's going to expand restaurant in dining uh, regulations so that people can do that more comfortably. Um, and uh, the shelter in place for people over 65, unless they're medically fragile, is lifted as well, Edward. And at the same time, you know, Georgia's been spared, Edward, what surrounding states have seen in terms of huge spikes in the weeks since lifting their restrictions. Um, and we've been very fortunate, but we're starting to see our numbers go up a bit more. Um, so far, the governor's won this risk, this gamble, but how concerned should we be uh, that we may face another spike, Edward? Well, we should be concerned, and I believe that the governor has put into place uh, calls still for folks to maintain social distancing, to still uh, be cautious, to still make sure you wash your hands, to use uh, masks, uh, you know, when out in public and close to other people. And, and this is going to be a one-step-at-a-time process for the next probably 12 to 18 months. Uh, but, you know, you have to balance that against uh, the folks' willingness and, or ability uh, to stay sheltered and uh, to keep uh, the economy shut down. Um, there's only so much you can do before people have a, you know, feel like they need to get out and be able to run their lives. The question is, are folks going to be able to do so responsibly? And, and, and there is going to be a lot of the questions. While the restrictions have been uh, eased, um, the question is, will people act responsibly? If they will, I think that we will continue to have at least a, a flattening of any curve so that the health community can take care of uh, those more serious cases. And if folks don't, uh, whether it be at a concert, whether it be at a beach, or whether it be at a protest at the Capitol, uh, then we're going to have to come back in and impose greater restrictions. Um, so the question is, are we going to act responsibly with this uh, additional uh, freedom uh, that we're given uh, underneath this pandemic? Mary Margaret? I think we're feeling our way and with facts that we don't know. Uh, I'm confused by what the rule says the governor issued yesterday about restaurants. You know, we have 50 small restaurants in Decatur. It's a major part of our of our community, it's a major part of our small business environment, and they are not all going to survive. The today's paper tells me that the governor has lifted all restrictions on the number of people that can sit in a restaurant or distancing of tables. I'm just not sure that we know what the rules are going to be at this point, and I do. The fact that the uh, national forecaster that most people have been relying upon, the epidemiology crowd out of the University of Washington now says that we're going to have 170,000 deaths by, I think he said, October is, is pretty uh, chilling information. 
We don't know what's going to happen with the virus. The states around us are having a spiking of new cases. Uh, I hope that Georgia will not have a spike, but I believe we're facing a lot of unknowns. I do not know what it means that you can have a, quote, convention or conference of 50 people and have no social distancing. I don't know what that means in terms of a practical application. Well, in fact, we... Yeah, in fact, conventions can come in much larger numbers if they abide by a number of uh, restrictions that and, and rules that the state is putting in place. So uh, I don't have those in front of me at this moment, so I can't tell you about that. But the, they are opening business back up for conventions to come in. Um, we're going to have to get to another break in a minute, Mary Margaret. But I do want to say, because Edward Lindsay really made, made the point here, um, you're gonna. You're where the rubber meets the road starting next week in terms of the balance between uh, uh, keeping people safe and getting the economy started again. Because you are going to grapple as a member of the Appropriations Committee with this tremendously difficult budget uh, that we have to deal with, given the revenue drops the state uh, has seen. So, in fact. Uh, you're going to face this uh, in, in ways that a lot of us out there are just watching. The only statutory duty we have in our remaining 11 days is to pass a budget, and that budget starts July 1st of 2020. That's our fiscal year 21 budget that starts in less than three weeks. Um, and the governor's changed his 14% reduction to maybe he's changed it to 11% reduction. So we're having a new round. But I'm very, very concerned about this budget. And the questions that we don't know yet, I don't know yet, how much are we going to get from the federal stimulus package that's being debated now? And will we know in the next two weeks? Two, how much are our revenues um, popping up, coming up? They're coming up some, we're measuring it daily. And uh, the, the reserves, how much of the reserves are we gonna get? We're gonna watch the budget hearing, uh, very, budget hearings very closely. Um, we gotta take another break. When we come back, uh, Edward and, and Mary Margaret, I wanna talk about one of the other big issues that we're gonna see develop at the uh, remainder of the session starting next week, and that's whether hate crimes legislation advances through the Senate and actually passes to go to the governor's desk. We will do that, and we'll come back and continue our conversation. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Hey, Edward, Lindsay, I got a quick piece of breaking news for you, and then I want to talk about hate crimes. Mary Margaret, this is for you, too. Uh, Greg Bluestein uh, is reporting just now that in the 7th District, a congressional race, the Democratic race, which we thought was headed to a rundown. Uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, who, of course, won the Democratic nomination last time out and lost by a narrow margin to Rob Woodall, is coming closer to an outright win. Uh, her folks, her supporters, of which you're one, Mary Margaret, think that uh, absentee ballot trends suggest that Carolyn Bordeaux may actually become the Democratic nominee without a runoff up there. We'll obviously be talking more about that 
in the days and weeks ahead. But let's let's talk hate crimes for a little while. Edward Lindsay, during your tenure in the General Assembly, certainly there was a call for hate crimes legislation, usually advanced by Democrats, never got very far. Now the Republican House passed that legislation last year. It's in the Senate right now, and there's pressure in the entire business community for the Senate to take action. Are we going to get a hate crimes uh, bill passed this year, uh, do you believe, Edward? I think there's a, there's a fairly good chance. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done between now and then. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, let me tell you that I represent the Anti-Defamation League, uh, and uh, my firm has signed on to the uh, letter from the Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce advocating for its passage, so I'm a great believer in it. And quite frankly, I consider this part of my uh, unfinished business when I left the General Assembly because I did advocate for it when I was there, but we weren't able to get it passed. Uh, like you said, it passed out of the House, uh, Mary Margaret's House, uh, last year. It's now in the Senate. Uh, it's, it's enjoying some strong support from the Lieutenant Governor. Uh, the question is, uh, what will it look like when it passes out of the Senate? Uh, the Speaker and the author of the bill, uh, Republican Representative Chuck Abstration, have asked that the bill pass out of the Senate with no changes, so that doesn't need any further action by the House. Uh, the Senate has indicated uh, that it does want to sort of tinker with it. The question is, what will it look like? Um, you know, if there are there are some folks on both ends of the political spectrum uh, that want to. Uh, uh, either add to it or detract from it. Uh, I certainly don't want to see uh, any of the protections that are contained within the hate crimes bill uh, taken out by the Senate. And I've, I've received repeated assurances from the Lieutenant Governor's office and from various members of the leadership that that won't happen. There are some other folks that want to see some things added to it, uh, given what's happened uh, in Georgia and around the country recently. Uh, the, the concern there is that some of these issues are complicated, and, and while they should, should certainly be addressed, uh, probably the biggest one would be the citizen's arrest issue. That's something that's going to need to be sort of worked through uh, over the next six months or next January. And you know what I and, and a lot of other folks want is let's get this piece of legislation passed. Georgia is only one of uh, All right, four so states of the country that don't have it, and, and we need it. Let's get this passed, and then All right, let's so, so move forward to the next step. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Mary Margaret, here's what's interesting about this. Uh, House members have said those Republicans over in the Senate are holding this thing up. It's time they just pass this out. Your speaker has called for a clean bill. But now there's Democrats on the Senate side who want to load the bill up with things beyond uh, the the basic hate crimes bill itself, with things like uh, stopping citizens' arrests. Uh, stand your ground laws. So now you've got Democrats on the Senate side who could slow this down and prevent it from getting through uh, if there can't be a compromise between what could be competing versions of the bill. The Senate uh, has had the hate crimes bill, House Bill 426, for 460 days. And everybody claims that they want to pass it, and yet it hasn't passed. 460 days. I am spending a good amount of my time on the repeal of the citizen's arrest statute, a total anachronistic bad policy that seems to encourage vigilanteism. And there is no reason to wait till January to repeal citizen's arrest. 
There are multiple other vehicles that the General Assembly could apply our attention to to deal with citizens' arrest or stand your ground. Hate crimes have to pass, and the phenomena of the Senate doing nothing, my definition of nothing, because they haven't passed anything for 460 days, puts them in a position of limited credibility, in my view. If they want to pass a hate crimes bill, then vote on it and pass it back. I don't have a strong opinion whether or not the Senate should strengthen the hate crimes bill, which I personally would do if I were writing it myself. But I do have a strong opinion that this dithering is simply a camouflage for some other political conversations that are happening behind the scenes. There are Senate Republican leaders who do not want to include gay people as protection against discrimination. And that is a totally unacceptable conversation to be having in 2020. So I am... Edward, uh, I got to get to a... Yeah. Finish up your comment. My comment, um, my comment on Ed, that is... Yeah, is go, that go I, ahead, Edward. I, I, I agree with Mary Margaret uh, that the protection of the LBGTQ community should be included in the bill. Uh, we've received repeated assurances that uh, that portion of the bill will remain in it by uh, key members of the, of the Republican leadership. Uh, the, the key here, though, is not to burden it with so many extraneous things that we make it difficult to pass in the next 11 days. Mary Margaret is right. It's been it passed by the House last year. It's sitting in the Senate this year. She and I both have been in the process long enough to know that it's often what happens. The question here is whether or not it gets done by the end of the next 11 legislative days. And my focus is not going to be pointing fingers, but to try to get everyone to hold hands, sing kumbaya, and get this thing passed. <laughs> All right. I've got to get to another break. And by the way, I apologize for having uh, interrupted you, Mary Margaret. I've interrupted you, Edward. I, and I do apologize for that. It's all part of the this working remotely. And uh, I tr do my best to be respectful of all of you. So I apologize if I've interrupted a couple of times. All right. Back with Mary Margaret Oliver and Edward Lindsay. First, let me just say thank you so much for those of you who have said nice things about Political Rewind. Um, you really are an extraordinary audience. And the, the relationship that I feel like we've all developed through years now of talking about big issues is so important to me. And I just want you to know that you mean it a great deal to me. Uh, and, and I'm glad you think well of the show, too. All right. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left. Mary Margaret, let me start with you. You're the Democrat on the panel today. John Ossoff wins the Democratic Senate nomination without a runoff. He will face David Perdue in November. How important is it that he was able to do this without facing a uh, what could have been a very difficult runoff election? It's a huge, huge benefit to Ossoff campaign. I'm very happy for him. He has surprised everybody at every turn. He, the number of votes he got exceeding a very well-qualified candidate, Teresa Tomlinson, is simply surprising. And it would reflect, which is positive for the Democrats and positive for him, is that young people are coming out to vote and that he has excited a new base of voters. When I saw the film of people standing in line uh, in DeKalb and Fulton County for two to six hours, it looked to me like young people. 
And it looked to me like those are folks that are excited to vote for John Ossoff. I'm proud of him. I've known him since he was a child. His family has been active civically all around uh, my territories, and I'm very proud of his success. Congratulations, John. Edward, uh, you know, it's a lot has been made of the fact that not long ago, uh, uh, David Perdue made the statement, uh, this, uh, this race is up for grabs. This is not a given that we're going to win. Well, you know, and, and so people took that for, at face value. If you're an incumbent, you don't want to say to people, don't worry about it. I'm going to win this thing. So I'm not sure we should make a lot about Perdue's uh, statement, but maybe this race really is in play. It is in play, uh, as shown by the primary results, which are uh, promising for Senator Purdue in that the total number of votes he received uh, were 723,000, and the total number of, of votes that were cast in the Democratic uh, U.S. Senate primary were 707,000. So he, he does show uh, that he does have an edge here, but it, it's an extremely competitive race, and, uh, and Senator Purdue is quite wise to take this seriously. Uh, Georgia is going to be competitive uh, on the presidential level, on the uh, U.S. Senate level with two U.S. Senate races, and all the way down to the um, General Assembly races and local races. Uh, and I don't think the Republicans are going to be caught napping here. Uh, they know it's competitive. They are working hard to get their uh, base activated as well. And, um, and, and I add to congratulations to, uh, to Mr. Ossoff. Uh, he beat some very well-qualified Democrats without a runoff, but now he's facing uh, someone who is formidable, who has a great resume in terms of his success before he got into uh, politics, and uh, we'll see what happens in November. Mary Margaret, the fate of a John Ossoff and other Democrats on the ticket, to some extent, will depend on how invested the presidential campaign of Joe Biden decides to come into Georgia and uh, really invest heavily on winning this state. And there's some question as to whether the Biden people are going to want to do that, uh, because it's still a risky proposition. Uh, I hard to believe that the Biden folks would not come to Georgia, given the fact that we have two Senate seats. What I'm watching closely is uh, what is plan B for Senator Purdue? What's plan B for Lindsey uh, next door in terms of what terrible Graham. thing the president's going to do tomorrow? What is the president going to do tomorrow, that's today or tomorrow, that's going to require David Purdue to finally say something that communicates to Georgians that there's simply behaviors that he's not going to support? David Perdue's success is tied to President Trump. President Trump, you know, approval ratings down into the 30s. And I don't know what the president's going to say or do tomorrow, but it, the Republican leaders of this state and nationally have to have a plan B in mind if the president's uh, approval rating contends to be in the 30s. If I were David Perdue, I would be very worried, A, about what the president's going to be doing tomorrow, far more than I'd be worried about how many millions of dollars Joe Biden's going to put into Georgia. Georgia is at play. Ed Everybody knows that. Edward, I think you're going to end up with the last word on this. It is certainly true that David Perdue's press office, at least, has not been cranking out a lot of releases as they used to 
about how David Perdue supports this thing the president has done or said, that thing the president has said or done. He's gone a little dark in terms of talking about uh, his giving his praise to the president lately. Well, I think the president can uh, stand on his own and, and should stand on his own. He's got his election to run, and uh, Senator Perdue has his race to run. And Senator Perdue, I believe, has a, a strong record uh, in the U.S. Senate uh, fighting for various issues that I think are important to Georgia. He's running against a, a young man, a, a very nice young man. Uh, but let's face it, uh, Donna, uh, to borrow a phrase from, um, from uh, Ann Richards, from a couple of decades ago, he was born on third base and acts like he hit a triple. Uh, so you're going to have someone with a proven business record uh, in, in private life and a proven uh, record in public life versus someone with not with a very thin resume. And I feel very good about the chances of Senator Purdue, but it is going to be competitive. Mary Margaret, we are virtually out of time. You get about 20 seconds to respond to what you just heard Edward <laughs> Lindsay say. Georgia is it? And I mean it, 20. <laughs> Georgia is at play. Georgia is at play. Everybody knows that. And next week for the General Assembly, the budget, citizens' arrest, and hate crimes is what's on my mind right now. All right. Uh, Edward Lindsay, uh, we're watching you on the WebEx that we use just to do internal communication. You just held up a Visa card uh, clearly saying David Perdue has a money advantage that is going to really help him as he moves forward against uh, John Ossoff. And certainly he has an enormous war chest. Thank you for that visual clue, Edward. That's it for today's Political Rewind. Mary Margaret Oliver, good luck starting on Monday with a legislative session. We'll have you back to talk about that sometime in the week or so ahead. Edward Lindsay, thank you so much for today's show and all of you for listening. And again, thank you for the support you've given to this show and to me personally. I cannot tell you how much it means to me. Uh, So thank you for supporting us. 